Welcome to This Week in Surgery Centers. If you're in the ASC industry, then you're in the right place. Every week, we'll start the episode off by sharing an interesting conversation we had with our featured guest, and then we'll close the episode by recapping the latest news impacting surgery centers. We're excited to share with you what we have, so let's get started and see what the industry's been up to. Hi, everyone. Here's what you can expect on today's episode. We hear about the concept of interoperability all the time, but what does it really mean and look like in practice? Michael Powers is the administrator at Children's West Surgery Center, and he's also the president of the Tennessee Ambulatory Surgery Center Association. And he's here today to talk about the power of interoperability and technology. Michael and his team have recently undergone an initiative to transition from five or so different software vendors to one. So he shares what that process has been like and what it means for the future of his surgery center. In our news recap, we'll cover what Gen Z is looking for in a workplace and a job, the latest on cybersecurity attacks in the healthcare industry, sustainability tips for the OR, And of course, end the new segment with a positive story about a new training module built to enhance care for the homeless. Hope everyone enjoys the episode, and here's what's going on this week in Surgery Centers. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Good morning, Erica. It's my pleasure to be here. Before we get into our topic, can you share a little bit about yourself with our listeners? Sure. Um, I've been in healthcare for 38 years. I started out many years ago as a respiratory therapist, uh, proceeded to get my graduate degree and an MBA. I've mostly been in large healthcare systems, but for the last 10 years, I have been an administrator for a multi-specialty children's pediatric uh, ambulatory surgery center in Knoxville, Tennessee and have had the pleasure of being on the board of our Tennessee Association, as well as am the current president for TASCA. Awesome. That's great. What uh, what type of procedures do you perform and, and how many cases do you typically see in a month? Um, we're averaging between four and 500 cases a month, so we're quite busy. Uh, the when you think about the pediatric population, a lot of what we do is ear, nose, and throat, mm-hmm. uh, followed by urology, uh, followed by ophthalmology, followed by oral surgery, dental, and very few orthopedics and very few plastics. Yeah. Do you find that um, serving a younger population is 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 different in nature than serving an adult population? It's extremely different. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have the adult population, you know, being having such a high anxiety that, you know, that they cry, that they have separating mm-hmm. separation anxiety from their mom and dad. And so we try from the very beginning have created an atmosphere, not only a physical environment where it's bright colors and we have special toys and iPads and other things to try to distract them. The other thing that we do, uh, you know, they do receive some medication uh, in the holding room uh, prior to going back to the OR room to help them calm, uh, to help the Mm -hmm. separation anxiety be less and a smooth transition into the operating room. 
And then obviously um, every patient is important and you never ever want to cause harm, but we just feel this more um, strongly uh, that when you're dealing with children, we, the, the bar is raised even higher for us. And so yeah. making sure that every, you know, every I is dotted and every T is crossed and the team's well communicated, that we're very blessed. I mean, our anesthesiologists are all boarded in the pediatrics. Um, our nurses, um, the majority of them have been with pediatrics for a very, very long time. We also have been very blessed. We have extremely low turnover. Uh, and uh, so people know what they do and they do it very, very well. We also mm-hmm. have a process that we think works extremely well is, you know, you have two phases of recovery. So you have your post anesthesia recovery when they're still really, really sleepy and they're starting to wake up. And in the uh, pediatric world, it's a one-to-one. You have one nurse for one patient throughout the entire process. And then whenever they are starting to become alert and waking up, then we immediately get them into a private room in a second phase of recovery with their parents, which seems to really have a smooth transition and more comforting for the child. They have their mom or dad with them and holding them and comforting them until they're ready for discharge. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of waking up and seeing that familiar face, I would imagine makes a huge difference. So yeah, it's just interesting because I feel like we're always kind of talking about and thinking about surgery centers from a sense where they're serving adults and, and, and the elderly population, um, you kind of forget that there's uh, a lot of children that have surgeries as well. So um, that's good. It sounds like you guys have a ton of compassion and kind of take all of that into consideration. Um, so I was reading Becker's a few a few weeks ago, and you caught my eye because you were featured as the administrator of the week. Um, and as I kept reading, I learned how you were implementing new technology at your center in the hopes of greater interoperability, which is something we really haven't talked too much on the podcast yet. Um, you know, what is it like actually cutting out all the different siloed technologies um, that a lot of surgery centers use today? What were you experiencing at your facility that really drove you to want to make a change? You know, in going back to my hospital days, you know, you have you large systems, whether it be Cerner or Epic or, you know, some of the major ones that people are really familiar with. And they were really focused on uh, which 80, 90 percent of what a lot of the patient population coming through is inpatients. Right. And then you see a growth in the outpatient world, but mainly uh, it's it's, you know, it could be PT or whatever. So their, their needs are different. Um, I have never really seen in my past year, especially on the hospital side, that these large software companies really had a focus or a really great product for outpatient surgery. Mm-hmm. So being in this facility, whenever I started working here 10 years ago, they were using a product that they started with and this center is now this month actually celebrating tw- its 20th anniversary for 20 years. Nice. And in that 20, you know, thank you. And in that 20 years, we have served over 80,000 patients. And so we're, we're, we're going to celebrate later this month. But what I discovered coming here is so we, you had this um, business software 
that was able to do obviously your registration, your OR scheduling, your billing, uh, keeping up with that, um, your accounts, uh, uh, posting for your accounts from the patient billing pro uh, population. Um, but that was pretty much all that it did. The other piece was, you know, you were only allowed um, a so many number of people that you paid for to have access to the system. And as we've been growing, it was be very common that we would say, oh, do you need this product? Can I have it for a few minutes? You know, mm -hmm. while I need to look something up. And so we, we were having to share. And when we looked at adding more users, it just was not cost effective. It did not make sense. And this product being as the age that it was, they were maintaining it to function and it functioned very well from a stability standpoint, but there was no upgrades, no changes, etc. So we ended up uh, really having paper charts, having this one old system to cover those functions that I mentioned to, um, you know, me saying, how can we try to eliminate some of the manual work that we're doing to more of utilizing either a social media or uh, other kinds of software applications to better communicate with their patients and families and to be more efficient. And so the, the next thing we added was we added an online uh, pre-admission medical questionnaire mm -hmm. instead of calling every single patient. And we were calling them and trying to get mom or dad on the phone and trying to ask them this long questions. And either A, they wouldn't answer, B, it would go to voicemail, or C, the voicemail wasn't set up. And you were just, or sometimes you call mom and she's in a grocery store, you know, pushing a buggy in and with the kid and just wasn't convenient to answer all these questions. And so it's a lot of callbacks, callbacks, callbacks. So creating this, uh, working with this system of where we could just send out to mom and dad. And we originally did it from the physician's office in a brochure to say, here, go online, here's the link, go fill out this medical questionnaire, you know, and answer it, and you can do it at your convenience. And then we monitored, and our goal was, you know, um, seven calendar days or five business days prior to the date of surgery that they would have that completed. If not, then we were prompting them that they really needed to get that completed. Because as you know, in an ambulatory surgery center, if they have any kind of complications, comorbidities or whatever, they're not a candidate for to come. Mm -hmm. And we're blessed that we have a children's hospital right here um, in town that they would go there if they needed to have the procedure done. And so that was the first thing we did. And it was, I mean, huge in the amount of work that it took off of our pre-admission nursing staff. And then the next step we went to was um, getting a, a, another separate um, texting platform that we began to text patients. And yep. so we could text them if we needed to contact a business office for discussed deductibles or out of out of pocket expenses. Uh, the pre-admission nurse could text if they had questions and needed, you know, once they reviewed their medical questionnaire. Um, and then 
we always, the day before surgery, because you're always having additions, subtractions, cancellations. So the day before surgery is when we really put all of our patients in order, when they're coming, how we're going to do our day to make it most efficient as possible. So the day before surgery, then we're texting NPO instructions, which they've already had in writing before, as well as their arrival times to the center. Now, obviously on the front end, we get permission to text them and they give us either opt in or opt out. Um, and then lastly is we were doing uh, not electronic charting, but paper charting. And at the end of the day, when the patient was discharged, then all of those charts were being scanned into a, another software that was a digital repository for all of our records. Then we could shred the paper and then everybody, you know, can have access if they needed to see an old record to anyone. Okay. So even though we had continued to uh, advance utilization of, you know, what technology offers us today, you know, you had four or five, six different vendors and applications and software, and not everybody was talking to one another. And seeing that our core business office software system was aging and getting older and there was no upgrades or whatever, to me, the writing was on the law that eventually this was going to be phased out. Sure. So we, so we began actually a year ago thinking, doing research, talking to a lot of my colleagues to see what they're using, where they're at, um, and then doing uh, demos and asking a lot of questions and seeing things. And we even went to some local facilities, ASC friends of mine, to look at products that they had and were using to help us narrow down what we thought would be the best product for us that will allow us over time, not only improve day one, but slowly phase in these other things so that we can have one vendor, if you will, one application that house all of this for us. And think about yep. staff. They wouldn't need six or seven different passwords. They're, you know, they aren't have to learn five or six different systems that we can all be housed within one. So having that long-term goal and, and living in that world brought us to as I stated, you know, when I was talking to Beckers of really focusing on um, not just where do we want to go this year, but where we see ourselves in three years and five years and finding a vendor that we believed would um, have that flexibility to grow with us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think that's the only path forward right? Especially when you talk three years, five years with all the different outcomes that are coming and all the different reporting and measures. It's like you have to have these systems that speak to one another so that when it's time to pull these reports and metrics and, and plan for the future, you have the data and the systems that speak to one another so that you're, you're able to do so. We're when you, so you knew you had to make a change. How did you start socializing that with your staff to get all of them on board? Or were they just so frustrated with the day-to-day -day that they were welcoming change? Um, it was mixed. Some were uh, welcoming the change because they could see 
you know, the, some of the frustrations that we had with the existing system, especially um, not enough access for users. And, you know, the new systems is unlimited users. I mean, Mm -hmm. and so, I mean, that right there seems small, but it was a big, big deal. Your people who I think use this more than anyone else, especially initially, is your business office. They're doing the registration. You know, they're doing the OR schedules. They're doing the billing. They're doing the posting. They're doing the communication. They're making sure, you know, the emails, the cell phone numbers, all this data and everything up front is accurate. They're doing the insurance uh, verification and benefits, which I didn't even talk about that. Our mm-hmm. old system was, you know, they would have to go on the um, website, look up that individual person, find out, you know, what their benefits were and create this manual sheet on, you know, where they were in their deductible, what we were having done, what was the, you know, the allowable based upon our contracted rate, where now we'll be able to do that, you know, just by simply through the system. So again, right. highly effective, highly efficient a lot less uh, manual labor on the individuals. But I think um, just encouraging people um, that we believe that it's either going to be now or it's going to be in the near future, we're going to make a change. Mm -hmm. And so let's be proactive and let's do it. And, And I think also they trusted us that we did our homework. We took our time. We do our, did our due diligence. And then the other two things we did is we took some of our key staff to some local facilities that was using a product that we felt like was the one that we wanted to go with so that they could see it. And then lastly is I spent a lot of energy and time and I wouldn't say go on an overboard, but I made sure that they had a lot of hands-on training and accessibility during that whole process of leading up to and the first couple of days of go live were that, you know, they were never in a sink or swim situation. Sure. Yeah. So, and that makes sense how, so I'm getting how, you know, true interoperability will impact your staff's day to day. What about from the patient side? How do you think they are impacted by having, this technology and in all of your systems speaking to one another? I, I think it's, it's not going to be as um, visible to them mm-hmm. because, you know, we still text them. That's going to be the same. The questions that we ask them, that's all going to be the same. So all the pre-work is going to be the same. How we handle them from a patient care perspective internally is going to be the same. I think the only thing that, we haven't um, done yet, it's in the future, is with the system that we have, we'll be able that we can set up an OR board where they will be able to visually know their child's in the OR, their child's in recovery, and we'll be able to have a visual communication that today they don't have. It's mm-hmm. more of, you know, we will let them know verbally, um, especially if it's a long case how things are going and we'll talk to them via phone. But I, I think that's something new in the future that will help them. But again, thinking about our patient population and the families, I think 
since we didn't add anything new to them, then it's, it's pretty seamless for the patient and family side. Sure. Definitely makes sense. And since you've kind of started down this journey, have you seen any immediate benefits or direct time savings, direct financial savings that you can report on? I know it hasn't been too long, but. Um, initially financial savings, I'm going to say no. Um, uh, but efficiency and staff satisfaction, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So efficiency part is we have actually decreased from an average of eight minutes to five minutes uh, for registering patients, which nice. shocked me. We did that within two or three weeks. Um, the other thing is that, like I said, it's small, but we have unlimited users that can access the system. So no more of, like I said, asking someone, hey, can you get off so I can get on to look and do something and then I'll give it back to you. I mean, we don't have that anymore. Um, and then it's uh, it's just very more up to date, in fact, of being very intuitive on how you maneuver. If you're used to using Google, if you're used to using a computer, then it is, it is um, more up to date and being able to put patient on the OR schedule, being able to rearrange that is so much easier than the older system. Um, so I think efficiencies just in the use of it, uh, efficiencies in its design, um, efficiencies in uh, it's anybody can access it. Um, and we've been able to, I think in those ways, um, utilizing the testing system and all the patients that we register are already automatically in the texting system. So we just pull up the patient right there's their cell number. We can text them whatever we want to. Obviously we have templated uh, formatted texts mm-hmm. that are common to just about everybody. And then, but we also can uh, make it unique based upon is there anything special that we need to communicate to them. So um we're in the final phases of bringing up the uh, insurance verification piece to go online. Uh, you know, we've had to do a little bit of uh, integration with that. Um, I, I think uh, it's it's definitely people, once they started to see it and once they started to get where we were going and its capabilities, then it just, it built excitement. It build among the staff. And I think that became um, uh, just uh, was shared. And as, as one person got excited, then another person see that excitement and then they would start getting excited and it sort of spread in a very positive way. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, okay. I think that was all the questions we had today, but we do this every week with our guests. What is one thing our listeners can do this week to improve their surgery centers? I think that uh, for me is um, number one is for us, the the focus, it's hard to find staff. Staffing shortages is a big deal. So ensuring that you're competitive on compensation, 401k matching, um, you know, things that you can do, you can do small things. Uh, 
just last week we brought in a coffee truck and paid um, for everybody to get a coffee or a hot chocolate or whatever, just to sort of celebrate some of the um, uh, things that we've accomplished. I think from an administrator side to a surgery center side, obviously, if you want to be extremely successful, uh, work in your OR schedule. Maxim knowing what your most profitable cases are, maximizing that, knowing your fastest physicians, giving them two rooms to flip back and forth, mm-hmm. working the OR schedule in such that you're doing cases that make you the most money, that you don't have gaps, and that you're doing as many cases as you can per day. I, I think that's foundational. Number two is we work and we rework every three years, every contract that we have to get fee increases. Yep. So I think staying on top of that and we're and and again, you got to know your business. And if you don't know what your most profitable and your most common cases are, then um, you have to very closely watch the contracts you negotiate because they sort of want to stay budget neutral. But what you want is you want the cases that you do the most of to ha- to make the highest profit off of. Sure. So having that data and knowing your business. And then lastly is everything that you can to control your expenses. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, the bottom line is you got to have happy employees. Happy employees will make happy physicians and happy patients. Uh, and then if you want to be profitable is knowing your business, working your OR schedule, increasing your revenues and decreasing your expenses. I mean, that's, it's basically what I call your very basics in football of just blocking and tackling really well every day in and out. And I think staying connected, you know, through your associations, through your state or the national associations, having other administrators or other individuals that you network with and talk with, I I find very invaluable. Yeah, I agree. And I think HST works closely with a lot of the associations. We love working with with Tennessee. And it's amazing how much the associations do at the state level on behalf of their members in all surgery centers. It's really impressive. So kudos to you. (laughs) Um, All right, Michael, thank you so much. I appreciate all your time and expertise and can't wait to see uh, what the future holds for you guys. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And you have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. As always, it has been a busy week in healthcare, so let's jump right in. LinkedIn recently published their 2023 Workplace Learning Report and revealed that members of Gen Z which is defined by the U.S. Census as those born between 1997 and 2013, prioritize job security, competitive pay, and a good work-life balance when considering job opportunities. They also value workplace diversity and uh, inclusivity, prefer clear communication and feedback, and value company transparency and social responsibility. So why does this matter? The average age of a nurse in the U.S. right now is 52. So as more um, of our experienced nurses are looking to retire, 
or maybe even just pick up less shifts, surgery centers and other healthcare facilities need to understand how to attract and retain younger nurses and leaders. And as Gen Zers are now either fully part of the workforce or are just considering what their career might be, employers need to focus on providing these key elements in their workplace culture so that younger staff and those just coming out of college um, or those who are working, looking for a, a career uh, will consider working at their surgery centers or healthcare facilities. So I highly recommend checking out the article and the full report. We will link both in the episode show notes so you can easily find them. A recent report by Moody's Investor Service highlights the increasing importance of cybersecurity investments for healthcare organizations. So this topic is nothing new, um, and the report notes, as we all know, that healthcare orgs are particularly vulnerable to cyber attacks due to the large amounts of sensitive patient data that they naturally handle and store. Um, and a cyber attack will not only cause financial loss, um, but will also cause reputational damage and legal liabilities. So for perspective, federal, federal records indicate that healthcare breaches have exposed 385 million patient records from 2010 to 2022, and that 89% of healthcare providers typically suffer a cyber attack over any given 12-month timeframe. So the good news is that the report found that healthcare organizations are increasing their investments in cybersecurity measures, uh, such as data encryption, employee training, and software and hardware updates. Um, and that is becoming more common that these healthcare orgs are outsourcing their cybersecurity functions to third-party vendors that specialize in this area. Uh, one interesting call out that I thought was important was that investors are increasing, increasingly asking healthcare organizations about their cybersecurity strategies. So previously, maybe it was something they asked, but it wasn't um, didn't hold as much weight as it does today. Um, and also investors will be less likely to put money into organizations that do not have strong cybersecurity measures in place. Um so we have reported on stories like this before and will continue to do so, um, as this is one area that, unfortunately, you can't just get away with the set it and forget it mindset, um, and you must stay on top of it as things are constantly evolving. In our third story from Outpatient Surgery Magazine, they are highlighting the environmental impact of healthcare operations and the potential benefits of practicing more sustainability. So every healthcare facility contributes significantly to environmental pollution and waste. Uh, this includes greenhouse gas emissions, waste generation, water usage, uh, single-use medical devices, packaging materials, uh, and the list goes on and on. Um, but one specific call out in this article is gloves. The article states that if you're serious about sustainability, um, you better be focusing on your glove purchasing practices. So why call out this single item? Uh, according to a senior strategist at Healthcare Without Harm, they're one of the highest volume products in healthcare. They have significant resource and greenhouse gas use associated with them. They naturally generate large amounts of waste. They contain chemicals that are concerning um, and have a problematic supply chain. So it is a bad day to be a glove. <laughs> and I think gloves in general might need a PR team after this article. But everything that they shared really does make sense. 
Um, but the good news is that Healthcare Without Harm did release a step-by-step guide called New Sustainability Criteria for Examination and Surgical Gloves. And they lay out exactly what you should be looking for in your vendors. Uh, what example would be, you know, does a supplier, um, like what's going on with their packaging processes? Are they sustainable? Um, is everything recycl- uh, recyclable? Are they only using materials um, that are necessary? You know, no extra fluff, stuff like that. Um, so overall, this article serves as a reminder of the importance of sustainability practices um, in perioperative settings. And I do encourage every surgery center to adopt environmentally sustainable practices in their operations wherever they can. Um, and we also have a great podcast episode we did with Adam Hornback um, on real ways to reduce waste and increase recycling that came out in December 2022, if you are interested in learning more about this topic. And to end our new segment on a positive note, Yasmin Latour, an assistant professor at Villanova University College of Nursing, has developed a training module for healthcare providers to enhance care for the homeless. The module aims to increase knowledge and awareness of the unique health needs and challenges faced by homeless individuals and provide strategies for effective communication and empathy. The program has been tested in Philadelphia so far and has received positive feedback from healthcare providers who reported feeling more confident and prepared to provide care to homeless patients. Um, And the goal is that this module can be implemented in healthcare facilities across the country to improve healthcare for the homeless population. And that news story officially wraps up this week's podcast. Thank you, as always, for spending a few minutes of your week with us. Make sure to subscribe or leave a review on whichever platform you're listening from. I hope you have a great day and we'll see you again next week.